0: Ephesians chapter 4, near the end of the chapter, verse 25, Ephesians four 25. We're going to continue with the same theme, the putting off and the putting on, the putting away of certain actions and ways of thinking, and the putting on of Jesus himself, the goodness of God. I hope that you were able to hear at least one of the last couple sermons. It'll help you understand a lot, or maybe even both of the last two teachings help immensely with the application and understanding here. This is God pointing out to me and to you, that's the sin that you were saved from. He's having us look back, but it's not just so that we can be down about who we were. It's so we can look back and say, that's what Jesus saved me from. And now I'm a new person, and he saved me for something quite different. This is certainly not a section about how to be saved, but it is a section about the conduct of the Christian and about how you and I are to literally put off ungodliness. We're not to live like the unbeliever. We have the capacity, we have the ability to live in the old self. Don't you hate that? I hate it. We can go back and live like We're not belonging to the Lord. We can go back and live in darkness, back in futility, back in lying and cheating and stealing and the stuff that we learn about here in this passage. But the Lord says, put that off and put me on. And we learn in verse 25, here's the language. Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So I'll continue with the points in order so I won't throw you off. We've done 11 points so far. And so we'll start with 12. This is put off lying. Here it's said put away, but really put off and put away are the same thing in this context. That's the old way of life, not the new. Thou shall not lie. That's the ninth commandment of the 10. And look at this Verse 25 it gives us the reasoning behind the commandment to not lie. What does it say? It says that we're members of one another so that when we're not truthful with each other, when we lie to each other or when we lie about each other, we're tearing down ourselves because we're members of one another. We're members of the body of Christ. A falsehood doesn't just hurt the person we're lying about. It hurts us. So here is Paul reasoning with us by the Spirit and reasoning with the Ephesians, saying, you're hurting the body of Christ, therefore you're hurting yourself. Does one of your feet stomp on the other foot? Well, not on purpose, usually. That's not normal, healthy, human body behavior. Does your hand on purpose poke yourself in the eye? No, you're hurting yourself. Do we see lying? Do we see sin in that context? When I think about being dishonest, I usually consider that it's displeasing to God, and that is true, isn't it? It breaks his heart. He is truth, and when we lie, we're not acting like our Heavenly Father. When I think about lying, I often think of the trust that's broken down. It erodes trust in our relationship. Pretty difficult to trust somebody that's lying to you, isn't it? But here, this reasoning is a different one altogether, Behind the commandment to put off lying, it's saying you're hurting yourself. And the church and our operation is once again at the center of this commandment. You don't just hurt the one you're lying about or you're lying to. You're hurting yourself. The father is hurt when his children hurt each other. Isn't that true? And the children, even though they think they're doing something to hurt the sibling, it's hurting them also. This is the put off of lying, putting off of lying. Most of the time, we think about lying only as the blatant lie. Isn't that true? And men have come up with terms like a white lie, or that's an out-and-out out lie. Like, that was a bold face lie. But all of it is lying. It's dishonesty. It's what the Lord is telling us to put off of here. They're all lies, whether they're subtle or they're, they're severe. Insinuations. When you insinuate. When I insinuate something about somebody else, that's usually a lie. Sometimes it's gossip, but many times even an insinuation is lying. It's falsehood. It's to plant the seeds of ill in a person's reputation and that placing of doubt in regards to a person's character. Just the question, especially in today's world, I know you see this, just the question is enough for some minds to automatically incriminate, isn't it? That's the way the unbelieving world is operating right now. You throw out an accusation, you don't necessarily have to even prove it. In fact, many times things are said and they can't be proven, right? But the idea is, I can say it and I'm doing some damage. God reasons with us in his word. He says, my church ought not to be like this just to tag somebody, to put somebody down with a lie. Let's not be like that. I I read Psalm 50, sorry, it's 15 this morning. This is what it said, a Psalm of David. David says this, he prays this, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? So David is asking, God, who's going to be close to you? Who's going to be near to your heart? Who's going to hear your voice? And then he answers his own question. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friends. So don't lie. You might call it exaggerating. You might call it insinuating. But this isn't just the appeal to be a good person. It's the appeal from God saying, you're destroying yourself. You're a part of God's family. And this dishonesty is hurting you. You might feel like you're getting ahead. But really, you're getting behind. You might feel like you're sticking it to the man. And God says, you are the man, right? You're sticking it to yourself when you lie. You're hurting yourself. This is one of the main passages I go to in marriage counseling because we are wrong in our minds when we think our dishonesty towards our spouse is going to help. We're hurting ourselves. We're tearing down the one flesh that God's created in the context of that marriage. Keeping that honesty, starting in an honest manner, keeping that open communication of honesty between the two. True in the body of Christ, true in marriage. Put off lying. 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. What do you think I called this point? Point number 13. At first it was going to be like, don't be wrathful, but I, I look at what it says in 26. I but put on righteous anger because there's a command to do something before there's the command to do not. Do you see that? It says, be angry and do not sin. It is right and good for us to be angry that God is blasphemed. That should do more than bother us. It is right that we are angry that good is being called evil and evil is being called good. The Bible says be angry, but then right away it says in a hurry, but do not sin. Because the Lord knows that when we're angry, following closely upon the heels of that anger, even if the purpose of it is righteous indignation to start with, right away it's our tendency to sin in our anger, even if it, it initially was the right thing or the right thing person to be angry at. So do you see what the Bible is saying to us? Sin can become a part of anger in a hurry. When does anger become sin? Aside from quickly, what's your answer? I look at this and the Bible is telling me and you that when we start to stew on our anger, You can call it stew or brew. I I rhyme my notes. I alliterate my notes. When you start brewing, when you start stewing with anger, it's going in an unrighteous direction, isn't it? Even if that initial cause is one of righteousness, you and I can start to get a vindictive heart. You know what I'm talking about. You get angry, and God has to remind you, vengeance belongs to me, not to you. So that anger comes, we start to get vindictive. We start to go down that path of sin. Bitterness sets in. But look, we get a deadline from the Bible because the Lord knows we're full of excuses. And we'd say to him like, oh, I'm not really stewing that much. I'm really not that angry. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That means if the next day you're still stewing, you've stewed for long enough and you're not submitting it to the Lord, your anger has now become sin and bitterness is close behind, isn't it? So it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You know what it's like. You lay down to put your head on your pillow and there's, something's not right. The Bible says, don't, don't do that. Get it taken care of. If you're angry about something, give it to the Lord. Lord, you're the one. Vengeance belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. Let me lay my head down in peace and not go to sleep on my wrath. Because let me ask you this. When you go to sleep on your wrath instead of on your pillow or whatever, is it gone when you get up in the morning? Is that wrath? It's worse, actually, isn't it? More stewing, more brewing. The truth is, is God is warning us. We can't just pray the prayer, Lord, this belongs to, to you, not me. We have to practice that prayer. Give it to God. Don't let the sun go down on our wrath. You might think that letting the sun go down on your anger is no big deal, but what else does the Bible say in these verses, in the second one that we read? You might think, oh, it's just hurting me. Actually, it's giving Satan a place in our lives, a place of leverage, a a foothold, so that he can have More free reign in our lives. So the way we reason apart from God is, I just gave up this one little thing. I love my bitterness so much. My wrath is so great. I love to stew on it. But now, God's word says, there's a foothold for the devil in that, and he'll exploit it for all it's worth. Because remember, Satan's an opportunist, isn't he? It'll get bigger than bitterness itself. As God reminds you and me, this is what gives the devil a foothold in in your life, in your, your family, in your friendships, in the body as a whole. This bitterness, this going to bed on your wrath over and over again, sleeping through it and carrying it through days. Do you know how sad it is? I know you know it's sad to hear people say, I've been bitter for years. And you ask, when did this start? I think it was in 1990, right? Then you know it's a long time, right? Bitterness doesn't just fade on its own. We've got to put that off, put on righteous anger, and put off allowing the sun to go down on our anger. Do you see how the word of God is a two-edged sword? You know what the word says about itself. Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. One side of the sword reminds me and you that these sinful conducts are not pleasing to the Lord. That's one side of the sword. But then the Spirit swings the sword the other direction and tells us, you're giving Satan a foothold. Now, you might prefer one side of the sword over the other, but realize that's just a preference, not a principle, is it? We need both sides of the sword. If it won't wake me up to know that I am displeasing to God, by, by being a liar, and by being a bitter and angry person, sometimes I need it to wake me up that that gives the devil a foothold in my life. Both are true, and if we're going to be led by the Lord, we must accept both. Maybe you don't like hearing that this lets Satan have a foothold in your life, but we need to hear it, right? The foothold, sometimes even the mention of that can provoke us to obedience, I don't want anything to do with the devil and those that will teach you like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just a little bit of horror, just a little bit of gore. I don't want anything to do with him because God's told me the truth that he wants to kill, steal, and eventually destroy me. So I want to stay as far away from him as I can. Darkness, I don't want anything to do with it. Spiritual darkness. Let's look at Jesus in this putting on righteous anger. Jesus was righteously angry at times, wasn't he? I think about when he rebuked the Pharisees. That was some righteous anger. I consider when he took the whip and he cleared the temple because he said, this is my house, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. That's righteous anger. And when God judges this world, it will be righteous anger. If Eddie were to judge the world... It would be unrighteous anger. And we think if you're in that same mode, oh, that would just be great. I'd want to watch them go down. That's not the heart of God. He righteously judges, and his anger is righteous. So be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. We're now in verse 28, right? This is number 14, put off stealing, Let's read about it in verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands. What is good that he may have something to give him who has need. What a contrast. The life where you're stealing to the life where you're working not just for your own good, but so that you can bless others. That's night and day, isn't it? To go from... I'm just going to grab whatever I can. I don't care how dishonest it is because I need it. I can't get ahead if I I don't just take, take, take to saying, I'm going to work with my hands and I am a new creation in Christ. Therefore, I can be a blessing to others. Thou shall not steal. The eighth commandment reinstituted just like thou shall not lie here in the New Testament for Christians. Let's talk about stealing. Stealing is sneaky. And I don't mean you need to sneak in order to steal. I mean, stealing is sneaky. There's not a great chance that before we meet again on Sunday, one of you is going to rob a bank, or go into your favorite retail establishment and just shoplift a whole bunch of stuff out of there. Let's, Let's admit it. Either one of those would be, if we heard that, if you heard that about me, you'd be like, wow. I'm really surprised. (laughs) Stealing, though, is sneaky because it comes in other forms, does it not? When you're given something at work from your superior, from your, your, your boss, from your supervisor, when you're given something at work, does that mean you get to do whatever you want with it? Or does it mean that it was given to you For your job? Does it mean you can sell it, pass it on, give it away? Do you see how stealing can be sneaky? Because most of us wouldn't just break into some place and steal some equipment, but if we asked ourselves, did they give this to me so that I could use it on my job, or did they give it to me so I could give it away to somebody else, or sell it, or use it for my own purposes, or is it for the purpose of my position? Another sneaky thing about stealing is that it's not just stuff it's time. If somebody is deserving of this hour, then render this hour to whom it is due, right? Otherwise, we're stealing from who this hour belongs to. Now, that is true when it comes to the employer-employee situation, but it's also true in our lives and our relationships. We're robbing each other when we don't give what is due. Is, there, are there, is that time due to your spouse, your husband, your wife? Is it due to your kids? Then don't take it from them because that's stealing. You say, oh, that's technical. No, it's not. Render to them what is rightfully theirs. Have you ever felt like you're robbing your family? You're robbing your marriage? Have you ever felt like that before? Somebody please nod their head. Okay, somebody. I have definitely felt that way before. And you might say, it's just a feeling. Or is it the Holy Spirit saying, look, you have the wrong priority system. You're supposed to be spending time and quality time and not just entertainment time with these people in your life. You belong to them, right? And you're robbing them of that time. You never, you never go through that. you are like, look at the way I'm spending my hours. I'm spending my life. Let's not steal From one another. There's a great amount of trust in in the context of a family. You know, we go our separate ways, most of us do, and you're just kind of trusting. Michelle and I, some people don't like the term stay at home mom. You know, there's a lot of work to be done at home. Man, let me tell you. Sometimes we call them, instead of stay at home moms, we call them stay at store moms because you see them. And I'm not going to say which store they're at, because you might feel convicted. You go there, and if you're there during normal working hours, you're like, where did all these women come from, right? That's a stay-at-store mom. And so she goes, and she spends, purchase, 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 the living daylights out You're thinking, well, yeah, you need to purchase. But you see, there's a trust there, right? The same thing for him or her as they go to work. They're trusting that you're actually earning, that you're working, If you betrayed that trust and there's not that honesty, that's stealing. And instead, there's to be the work so that you can bless. That's true in in the body of Christ, isn't it? Let's not rob one another. So that's 14. Put off stealing. Your life is not your own. My life is not my own. We belong to the Lord. His priorities are good and right. Right? Let's spend our lives, spend our time, even spend our resources in a way that's accurate and due to whom it's owed. Let's take 28 and flip it around and go with put on generosity, because the word doesn't tell us just not to steal, but it tells us to work so that we can be a blessing to others. Do you know what the unbelieving world is telling you? That after you work, you just deserve, deserve, deserve. You deserve. And so do you you know why so many people blow their money, even though they're making tons of money? Have you ever asked that question? Like, how in the world does somebody who make that much money spend it all? A lot of times, it's because we have this sense that we deserve after we've worked. Oh, I work today. I deserve to go out to eat, right? And, that, right? and then I deserve this vacation, and I deserve this truck. And pretty soon, our sense of deserving far surpasses our sense of earning, Right? But here, look at what the Word of God says. We're to work so that we can bless others. And that's a whole different way of living and a whole different way of thinking. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But so many are not convinced of that. That's one of those really interesting passages, because if you search through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can't find anywhere where Jesus says that. But Paul writes to us and tells us that the Lord said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Something that was passed on at the end of the book of John, it says Jesus did many other things, taught many other things, right? And if we, they're not all listed here. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give. And how can we give unless we work? It really is a wonderful blessing. It's more wonderful than giving to ourselves with our work. Amen? Mm-hmm. To be able to give and say, look, I, I didn't take God at his word, but now I'm experiencing it. It really is more blessed to give. Put on generosity. That's number 15. There are many ways to give. And I, I know that there's these this really busyness in our lives, there's a shortage of time, there seems to always be a shortage of money, of resources, of just energy in general. But there are seasons in our life where, where we really can realize this in a, a very upfront way. I think about how many people in today's society, including in the church, they've worked very hard for much of their life, and now they're retired Now, I didn't say they didn't work, but they don't necessarily need to work in order to earn a living, in order to put food on the table, in order to make sure that the bills are paid. And oftentimes, retirement is is seen by the world as like, well, now it's just my time to to live it up, where according to God's word, now you're going to have more time to give and to do things that you couldn't do before. Isn't that true? I don't believe in what people say that I'm more busy now that I'm retired than when I, I was working. I, I, I don't believe that. I think our sense of, of what's urgent has changed, right? Yes, amen? And then nobody who's retired is amen to me, right? Because when you're working, you're just barely surviving. You don't remember the last time you got a new toothbrush, right? You're just like, well, <laughs> things start to, and now you have this flexibility, Now I'm not saying you're completely flexible, but use that flexibility of time and say, God, I can use this. If I could have been this flexible when I was 30 with my time, look at the needs I could have filled. Yeah, maybe I don't have as much energy, but use that flexibility. Maybe God has blessed you with expertise. Use that expertise for the glory of God. Give it away. If it's finances, if it's if it's that open heart to the Lord to realize that most be flexible, be giving. I told the kids sitting around the table at Truth for Teens the other night that that one of our um, people here in the church who is a full time RVer, you know, lives in an RV and that's their, their way of life, chose to make dinner for forty people at Truth for Teens out of their RV. I mean, I've heard people say like well, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, I'm just like, okay, I'm like the worst cook. I could do it, right? I could do it on a camp stove. It might not taste good, but I could do it. But there we are, and everything is always like, oh, man, how much hassle is that going to be? And when I told them that, they were like, wow. They put all this food together, and they just have that little stove, and they're, yeah, but working with their hands so that they may have something to give him. Who has need? What a practical blessing. Put on generosity. That certainly is Jesus. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I intend to spend some time on these verses Sunday, God willing. Let's go to 31. Let all bitterness. Wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Number 16, put on forgiving one another. Isn't that what we're told in the last verse in this chapter? Have you been forgiven? much by Jesus. A resounding yes, yes, yes. Then forgive one another. Have you been loved a lot by the Lord? Then love one another. Jesus spoke in a way that was very straightforward on this subject in Matthew chapter 18. I was going to tell it, but I'm going to read it. Listen. Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, he was brought to him, "'who owed him 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay. "'His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children "'and all that he had, and that payment be made. "'The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, "'Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all.' "'Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, "'released him, and forgave him the debt.' But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had all that was due to him. Last verse. So my heavenly father also will do to you, to you if each of you from whom his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Do you think Jesus is serious about us forgiving each other? I don't think he could have put it in a more plain fashion. How can we we've been forgiven much. Then turn and say, oh no, I'm not going to forgive this person. I'm not going to forgive that person. And there are some terrible sins. You will be wronged. It's a guarantee. There will be a lot of need for forgiveness in your life. Carry that understanding and that readiness into all of your interactions, into all of your relationships, are you ready, in light of Christ's forgiveness towards you, to forgive? To forgive your spouse, to forgive your kids, to forgive your extended family, your friends, your acquaintances, your, the strangers. Are you ready because you've been forgiven? The command is, is very clear. To be strong in the Lord in this area is to let forgiveness flow from Jesus through you because he's the source of forgiveness. Isn't that what the word is telling us? Forgiveness doesn't originate in us. Like sometimes you might say like, I just don't have it in me to forgive them. I agree. You don't have it in you. None of us do to forgive. If you've tasted of the forgiveness of Jesus, if you know what it's like to just be in awe and say to the Lord, I'm just so amazed that you would take me in, that you would forgive me, that you would wash my sins away. And what did he do to forgive you of your sins? What was the price? He went to the cross. And I will put it this way. What do we need to do? We need to let go. And we think that's so hard sometimes. And I'm not saying it's easy, but we didn't need to be crucified in order to forgive those who have wronged against, who have wronged us. Jesus took that punishment upon himself. And now it's our job to let that go and let God's forgiveness flow through us so that we can forgive. Jesus is the example of forgiveness. He's the source. He's the inspiration. It's his love. How can we hold a grudge when Jesus isn't holding a grudge against us? We sang tonight, You are my God, and the line in the beginning of the second verse is first forgiver. What a wonderful title. Jesus, the first one, the originator of forgiveness. If it wasn't for his forgiveness, we wouldn't have a clue about forgiveness. You forgave first, so that then we can learn how to forgive. And it's not something that we just say, okay, that was even serious, that's so easy, no it's like all of our sanctification. We just come, keep coming back to it. Lord, I need your forgiveness for that person. I thought I completely forgave him. It's coming up in my mind and my heart. Here I am again. My sin on you. Therefore, I can't hold on to this. If we don't forgive, what are our options? So if we've decided, I, I just can't let this go, what are the options? Where would you find those in the Bible? Aren't they right here? What's the list say? Yeah, verse 31. This is what happens when we don't forgive. There's bitterness, there's wrath, a lot of anger. Evil speaking starts because we feel that we have the right to speak evil of the one who has wronged us. And that bitterness is like an infected wound. The word of God likens it to that and, and then it's under the skin and it bubbles over, pus and blood everywhere, ugly and painful. When it comes to forgiving one another and putting on forgiveness towards one another, think about Jesus. He forgives friends and enemies, right? He forgave you and me when we were still in our sins, when we were yet in our sins, when we were at enmity with him. He didn't offer his forgiveness to us when we were his companions, when we were his friends, when we were faithful to him. So he extends forgiveness to those who are against him, to those who are his enemies. But doesn't Jesus also extend forgiveness to his friends? Are you the friend of Jesus? You say yes, I say yes. But now consider all of the times when you and I have willfully Sinned against Jesus, even though we know better, and he's forgiven us. He forgave you when you were his enemy. He forgives you now that you're his friend by grace. And for us, it's usually the forgiving of the supposed friend that's the hardest, isn't it? Because betrayal is, is terrible. And we think to ourselves, I can't forgive that person was everything to me. And that all that trust has just been dismantled. I've been hurt too deeply. So the Lord reminds me of myself. How many times? How many times have I forgiven you, even though you're my son, even though you're my friend? How many times have I sinned against the Lord, even though that my, I know my sin put him on the cross? That's the reminder, and since we're forgiven by the Lord, we're to be the most forgiving people on the planet. Now, maybe you're not going to be as close to that person, but there is, you can forgive them only through the strength and the power of the grace of God. Forgiveness. Prayer is key to being tender-hearted towards those who have sinned against you pray for your enemies. Pray for those who have wronged you. Pray for those who have used you. And you say, oh, I can pray, all right. I'll pray um, Psalm 58. Break their teeth in their mouth, oh God. <laughs> that, that, that's, that wasn't the prayer I was talking about. Break the fangs of the young lion. I'm praying for them, all right? No, I'm talking about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Pray for your enemies for those who spitefully use you. There it is. If we can't pray for that person, then we haven't forgiven them. If we can't honestly come before God and say, God, I'm here because I need to learn how to forgive. Your enemies ought to be on your list. And maybe even put them at the top of your list. I pray for Michelle and my kids. They're at the top of my list, like all the time. Sometimes like, okay, Lord, I'll put them down there. I love them so much. I pray for the people I love a lot. And the Lord's convicting me, put your enemies at the top of your list. Pray for the people that you're angry with. And I'm not talking about an anger that's without sin. Pray for them so that you can learn how to forgive them so that I can teach you my grace. And it's not that they're all going to be saved. It's not that they're all going to come around. It's not that they're all going to confess their sins and that I'm going to be made right with them, so to speak. But that forgiveness is what the Lord is calling us to at the very end of this chapter. Your salvation, the truth, the amazing truth that you were saved, doesn't it just bleed over into your sanctification? Like you can't really completely separate them The truth that you're forgiven totally changes the way you live out forgiveness. The truth that you're God's child, not by merit, but by his his favor, totally changes the way you, you treat other people. Praise God for that work in our lives that he made us new creatures. Lord, we lift these last couple songs to you, and we ask that you would make us willing to practice these truths I pray that as we spend time in your presence, we would tell you yes, not maybe or later. Lord, I pray that we would, would come and, and say what's so obvious, Lord, that we want to we wanna be like you. And that's not just something that's a cliche in our lives, but it's, it's the truth, Lord, that we want you to change us into your likeness, that we would put on you and no one else. Amen.